Acts 6 this morning. Uh, last time we saw the, the church uh, selected and the apostles appointed seven servants of God to help with the ministry of the church there in Jerusalem. There was, uh, the church grew, it grew exponentially, and there was a portion of the widows whose needs were not being uh, met with as much attentiveness as the other widows in the church. So there was a little bit of a problem there, but we saw last time how the church uh, together uh, solved that problem and those needs were met. And the result of that was seven men that were appointed to this particular ministry of seeing to the care of these Grecian widows. And we saw that one of those men was Stephen. And this morning, we will begin to study his witness, the witness of Stephen, together. We're going to look at Acts 6, verses 7 through 15, and then we'll get into the message. It says in verse 7 of Acts chapter 6, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. Verse 10, And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. What is it that our churches need in our day? What does this church need in particular? Some would say, well, this program or that program would help the church. And some would say, well, we could use some more members that would help the church. Some might try marketing or advertising to grow a church. And these things are, aren't necessarily bad things. But those things aren't going to make a lasting impact in the church. What the church needs in our day and age, and what this church needs in particular, is men and women of the Word that are full of the Spirit of God. Men and women that God can use. Powerful people of faith. So the question then is, as we look at the witness of Stephen, are you a Christian that is fit for God's use? Stephen's a great example of that. He has a powerful witness and testimony in Acts chapter 6 and in Acts chapter 7. And so we're going to divide the first part of our study into Stephen's witness into three key events here from Acts 6 verses 7 through 15. And as we look at his example and what the first portion says about him, think on this question and let this spirit examine you. Am I a Christian that God could use? So let's look at, first of all this morning, the success of the church. The success of the church in verses 7 through 8, it says, And the word of God increased, 
And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were added or were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great miracles and wonders among the people. We ended the last message with this same verse, but I didn't want to neglect some of the incredible truths that we find here in verse 7. The church was successful. They had handled that interpersonal problem. They had handled that strife, that dissatisfaction, those murmurings. They had handled it, handled it wisely. And now they could leave that problem in the past and they could move beyond it. And the church was successful. Without that division that had been in and amongst them, several key things happened next in the history of this church in Jerusalem. First of all, we see that the word increased. The word increased. Isn't it telling that the very first thing that's listed for us here in the church's success is not the growth of their numbers or the increase of the miracles and the healings, but rather that the word of God was increasing and growing. That's top of the list here in verse 7. The starting point for success in the church and the prerequisite for all spiritual growth in the church is the increase of the Word of God. The apostles, you recall, had de determined to devote themselves to the Word and to prayer. They said, listen, we've, we've got enough on our plate already. Our primary purpose, our primary uh, job is to spend time in the Word, to spend time in prayer, that we might teach it and preach it effectively. And because they focused in on that, God's word increased in Jerusalem and in the church. Not only that, but these seven men, especially Stephen and Philip the Evangelist, as Luke will call him, launched themselves headlong into their ministry, and they started preaching and teaching and witnessing themselves in the name of Christ. The beginning of growth in Acts 6 is the growth in the word of God. The word of God increased. God's word is inspired. It's God's God breathed. God's word is immutable. It's unchanging. God's word is inerrant. It has no errors. It's without mistake. And God's word is incomparable. It's unlike any other book. And what you must realize is that this book, though it's ancient in its authorship, it's by no means obsolete. It's the only book that can both be ancient and relevant because it's a living working book. As Hebrews 4 verse 12 tells us, the word of God is quick, alive, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's a powerful living book. It's an ever-working book. It's an inspired and profitable book. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 through 17 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for what is right, for reproof, for showing you what is wrong, for correction, for telling you how to get right, and for instruction in righteousness to keep you right, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. When you preach and teach the word of God, it grows, 
it increases. And the church was spreading the word. And as Jesus promised, the word of God sprang up and increased. In Mark 4.20, Jesus says, These are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. This is the formula for the church. This is the business that we need to be in. This is the task that Christ has given us to fulfill. As Paul told young Pastor Timothy, preach the word. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away from their, their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. That time that Paul warned us about, it's already on us. It's on us. Churches all across this city, all across this country, have left the clear preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And they pursued programs and philosophies and production value instead. It's across all denominations. I had a man join my church up north. He went to his leadership in his church one day, and it, it's a you know, it's an old denominational type church. And he said, listen, it just seems to me like we're not spending as much time teaching and preaching from the Bible. And basically their answer was, is that they didn't think they could hold people's attention with the Bible. We must faithfully sow the seed of the word and depend upon God to give the increase. Increase and success in the church does not come by gimmicks but through God. 1 Corinthians 3 makes it very clear in verses 5 through 9. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom he believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted. Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything. Neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own laborer, or labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. We must never put the cart before the horse. We must be careful not to sacrifice the constant, compelling, and careful preaching and teaching of the Bible. God has used me in my ministry to oversee many things. Churches are busy places. They're full of wonderful people, and a lot has happened in the nine short years that I have been a pastor. But what impresses me most is not the buildings that I've preached in or the programs that I've helped to run. What impresses me most is seeing the way which God's people, including many of you, have grown. And what is it that changes you exactly? What is it that transforms people's habits and their thinking and their attitude? It's not my leadership skills. It's not a 12-step program. It wasn't counseling sessions or confrontations. The vast majority of changes that I have seen in people in the church is come about in response to constant and consistent preaching and teaching of the Word of God. It's taken root in your heart. It's transformed your thinking. It's increased in you. And we must never forget that apart from the preaching and teaching of the Bible, our coming together is really no better than a social club or an exercise in networking. Why are we here exactly? 
Perish the thought that this church be another church that rises and falls on an individual. I think we've seen enough in our day and age of churches that grow underneath one man, and then as soon as that man is gone, they're gone. They're done. No, no, no. It's Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? He that watereth and planteth is nothing. It's God that gives the increase. And it's only through the preaching and teaching of his word. The word increased in Jerusalem. And then notice, secondly there, the numbers increased in Jerusalem. It's a funny thing. When you faithfully share the gospel, people get saved. When the word increases, numbers increase also. Romans 10 verse 17 makes it very clear. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We're not given an exact number here, but Luke does go to the trouble of adding the adjective greatly, which in the Greek means very, very much, exceedingly. This was a lot of growth. One man wrote that the continued increase must have brought the number of Christians to well over 5,000 believers, perhaps to even 10,000 believers, which would be about 10% of the population of Jerusalem if we assume it to have been 100,000 people at the time. Can you imagine that? One in 10 people in Jerusalem may have been a Christian. That's how much it increased. The church in Jerusalem was experiencing explosive growth to the extent that many of the priests came to Christ as well. As we mentioned last time, some scholars believe that there may have been as many as 8,000 priests in Jerusalem at that time. And Luke tells us that a great company of those priests trusted Christ. It's a simple but often neglected concept that when God's people faithfully and purposefully share the gospel, people get saved. So the question is, are we faithfully sharing the gospel? Are you? The numbers increased because the word increased. And also, in answer to prayer, the miracles increased. The miracles increased. The Spirit of God was still working mightily in this church. And God confirms the message and authority of the apostles once again with miracles. We find during this transitional time in church history that Stephen, who you recall, was full of the Spirit and full of faith, was also working miracles among the people. The phrase there, did great wonders and miracles, is in the imperfect tense, meaning that Stephen was working those miracles while uh, the events were going on that were mentioned in the previous verse. So not only was the church growing, the word was increasing, but Stephen was also working miracles as he went about his ministry of meeting the needs of these widows, many miracles were being wrought also. Stephen's activities were part of the growth of this church. And what was the key to Stephen's witness and effectiveness for Christ? I want you to think about what the Bible doesn't say about Stephen. It does not say that he was a man of tremendous talent. It does not say that he was a dynamic speaker or a skilled orator. It does not say that he was tall, dark, and handsome. It doesn't. It says nothing about his education or upbringing or background. What the Bible does say about Stephen in Acts 6 is that he was a man full of faith and the power of the Holy Ghost. Those are the keys 
to the effectiveness of Stephen for Christ. He believed God and he walked in the Spirit. Moody was to have a revival campaign in England. And an elderly pastor protested, Why do we need this, Mr. Moody? He's uneducated. He's inexperienced. Who does he think he is anyway? Does he think he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? And a younger pastor stood and said, No, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. The Spirit had a monopoly on Stephen. And through him, miracles increased. What do you suppose we need in our churches today? More talented men? More dynamic men? More wealthy men? Anything you can get by E.M. Bounds is a good read. But in his book, The Preacher in Prayer, this is what E.M. Bounds said. He said, we are constantly on a stretch, if not on a strain, to, to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations to advance the church and secure enlargement and efficiency for the gospel. This trend of the day has a tendency to lose sight of the man or sink the man in the plan or organization. God's plan is to make much of the man, far more of him than anything else, because men are God's method. The church is looking for better methods, but God is looking for better men. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. And the success of the church was grounded in the faithful preaching and teaching of the Word of God by men who were filled with the Spirit of God. The numbers increased as the Word increased, and God confirmed their message in Jerusalem through miracles. God will provide for the growth of the church today as long as you and I will stick to His method. Are you fit for God's use? There was nothing uniquely special about Stephen. He was just a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And those two things are things that any one of us have available to us through a walk with Christ. Notice not only the success of the church, but secondly, the strife in the synagogue in verses 9 through 10. Verses 9 through 10, Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. It's a guarantee, even in the early New Testament church, that when the church is growing, opposition will rise to meet it. How many times have we seen that principle play out already in just six chapters of the book of Acts? Peter and John were arrested for healing the lame man in the temple and for preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. They were told, expressly forbidden, to preach the name of Christ. When the church was unified and being generous, Ananias and Sapphira nearly spoiled it with their deception and their pride. And then when the apostles shook the city with their preaching and their healing and their miracles, they were arrested, threatened, and then beaten for preaching in the name of Christ. Every time the church prospers, persecution follows. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 
Stephen faced his own opposition in the members of the synagogues. And notice the opposition party there. Who were these people? The opposition party. We find that the opposition that he faced came in the synagogues. And I want to take just a quick uh, break, a cultural break here, to, to help you understand what a synagogue was and what it was like. One author wrote that a synagogue was a meeting place for the Jews to discuss community issues, share meals, adjudicate infractions of the law and of tradition, to collect and distribute charitable funds for purposes of social welfare, provide elementary education, study the Torah, and store the scrolls of the Holy Scriptures and other material. It was also a place of residence for synagogue officials and a hostel for visiting Jews. Not all synagogues had all these functions, but synagogues did not exclusively focus on worship services with prayers, readings from the Torah and of the prophets, and sermons, which did take place in the synagogue. They also dealt with communal affairs. The leader of the synagogue was called the president of the synagogue, who was sometimes of priestly descent. And the president of the synagogue was usually a wealthy person, a leading member of the community who looked after the ritual, administrative, and financial aspects of community life. Here we have mentioned in Acts 6, five distinct Jewish groups. And the construction of the original language seems to indicate that these five groups may have made up two synagogues, one composed of the first three groups and then another of the last two groups there in Acts 6. What you have to understand is that at this time in history, synagogues were arranged according to nationalities and even your line of work. And a Jew would attend the synagogue of those, of those most like him. We don't do that, right? We don't go to churches filled with people just like us. <clears throat> so a Jew would also attend a synagogue of those in his similar uh, place in society. One of the noteworthy nationalities mentioned here in Acts 6 is that of the Libertines. The Libertines were the descendants of Jews that had been carried away by Rome into slavery. And eventually they had received their liberty and Tiberius expelled them from Rome in 19 AD. Another noteworthy group is those mentioned here, the Cilicians. Cilicia was the city was where the city, rather, of Tarsus was located. So it's likely, we don't know this for sure, but it's likely that Saul himself may have attended this synagogue. What we have to remember is that there is no church building at this time for the believers to assemble in. So they still attended prayer time at the temple. They still attended synagogues. One author wrote that most communities of any size had at least one synagogue. Some had several a synagogue was to be established wherever there were as many as 10 Jewish men. A synagogue had to be located close enough for faithful Jews to attend without breaking the Sabbath by exceeding the distance the rabbis allowed one to walk on the Sabbath day. A typical service considered, uh, consisted of the recitation, recitation of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, of prayers, of scripture readings from the law, from the prophets, a sermon, and a benediction. A wooden bema, or platform, was found in the center of the synagogue hall, and the leader of the synagogue would stand on the corner of the bema with kerchiefs in his hand. When one came and took hold of the biblical scroll to read, the leader would wave the kerchiefs, and all the people would answer amen for each blessing. 
the leader of the congregation might ask any suitable person to address the assembly. Persons who were known as learned men or as expounders of religious faith were allowed to speak. Hence, we find Christ publicly speaking in the synagogue. The apostles also addressed the people in synagogues during their missionary journeys. So based on what we know of the time and of the customs of that day, Stephen obviously took advantage of the opportunities to address the synagogue. And he preached Christ. And he taught Jesus' teachings to the assemblies there. And the word arose, there arose uh, opposition there. And the word arose literally means they stood up. It was common in the synagogues to question the person who was speaking. And these men, taking issue with Stephen's teaching of Christ, stood up and argued against him openly in the synagogue. So it was a little bit differently. There was a little bit more back and forth. And the opposition literally stole, stood up in the synagogue and addressed Stephen's teachings. But notice the opposition's powerlessness. The opposition's powerlessness. They argued with him but they could not prevail against his spirit and his wisdom. They were powerless against him. Again, it's very possible that one of the men that suffered humiliation and defeat in attempting to match wits with Stephen was Saul himself. And this might explain why Saul stood at Stephen's stoning and why he had so much fervor in persecuting the church. The opposition was powerless against Stephen, not because of Stephen's skill or his brilliance, though I do imagine if we were to meet him, he was a formidable man, but rather because the Bible says Stephen was filled with the Spirit, and Christ had promised that the Spirit would answer when the hour of persecution came. Luke 12, verses 11 through 12, Jesus said, When they bring you unto the synagogues and unto the magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. say. And we see the very promise of Christ being fulfilled in Stephen's testimony. As Jesus said in Luke 21, verse 15, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And the verse there in Acts chapter 6, verse 10, is nearly identical. It says, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. It's wonderful to realize you and I have the very same Holy Spirit dwelling within us today. If you know Christ as your Savior, you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. 2 Corinthians 1 says in verse 21, He which establisheth us with you is Christ, or in Christ, and hath anointed us, is God, who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Ephesians 1 says in verse 13 and 14, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. If you have uh, Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've placed your faith in his finished work on the cross for your forgiveness of sins and eternal life, then you also have the indwelling spirit of God. Too many people today believe, I'm not smart enough. I'm not clever enough. I'm not studied enough. I'm not prepared enough to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Folks, God preached through the mouth of a donkey. 
He can use you and I as well. It has little to do with what is in your head. It is everything to do with the Holy Spirit of God. Fill your heart and life with God's Word. Pour yourself into consistent and constant prayer. Draw as close to God as you possibly can and beg Him to use you and you watch, He'll do it. One man said, Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power, it brings life, it brings God. Don't fall into the trap of the devil that tells you only a scholar, only a smart person, only a scholar, only a person that knows everything there is to know about Scripture can know God's person and his power. That's rubbish. After all, another man put it, Christianity did not start in the school of higher learning, but with a group of very ordinary men who came into contact with the person of Jesus Christ. Imagine what God could do with a generation of Christians that were yielded to His Spirit and bold in their witness. They don't have to be smart. They don't have to be preachers or deacons or missionaries. They don't have to be super talented. They just have to be yielded to the Holy Spirit of God. And the opposition would be powerless to resist such a force. Could you be a member of a force like that? The scheme of the religious leaders is what we encounter next. The success of the church. We see the, the, the strife that arises there and then the scheme of the religious leaders. In verse 11, it says, Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. They first of all hatched a conspiracy. They couldn't resist the witness, the wisdom by which he spoke. So they had to, to devise another way to get rid of Stephen. So they hatched a conspiracy. It's interesting, isn't it, that the best and brightest Jewish minds could form no worthwhile argument to counter Stephen's preaching of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. So instead, they hatched a conspiracy. They couldn't disprove him from Scripture. They could not argue against his message. But just as they had with Jesus himself, they refused to accept the truth. The gospel, as irrefutable as they found it, was still unacceptable to them. They had been shown over and over and over again the clear truth, and yet they continued to reject it. Warren Wiersbe said that Stephen's powerful testimony would be the climax of the church's witness to the Jews. Then the message would go out to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles. In order to condemn Stephen, they hire men to give false testimony of Stephen's preaching, declaring him to be a blasphemer against both God and Moses. This time, it's the Pharisees that are the source of this opposition. You recall previously, it had been the Sadducees. But this time it's the Pharisees. They saw Stephen's teaching as a threat to the system of rules and regulations that they called religion, the source of their power, all the traditions, the testimony 
that they pay the men to deliver against Stephen is very interesting. They held the law of Moses in such high esteem that to speak against it was as equal a crime as speaking against God himself. He's blaspheming against Moses and against God. And they hashed a conspiracy. They also kindled a controversy. Not only did they pay men to falsely accuse Stephen, they stirred up the people against Stephen. These tactics are the exact same tactics they used against Jesus Christ. They falsely accused him. They stirred up the people against him. So they kindled a conspiracy, and then they saw to his capture. The underlying language there is interesting. It gives us a little bit more insight into the events because the phrase came upon him and caught him can be expanded a bit to mean that they rushed at Stephen and caught him after a pursuit. It's likely that Stephen was caught by surprise and even attempted to flee but was unable to do so. And once they caught him, they brought him before the council. And there, before the council, they leveled charges against him. They're very familiar charges, and they should be. They're the very same charges that they made against Jesus. And this time, it's the Pharisees that are heading up this inquisition. There was going to be no leniency. No one was coming to the rescue this time. As with Jesus, the Pharisees would not tolerate any threat to their teachings and their way of life because it gave them power over the people. Stephen's Preaching elevated Jesus Christ above the law, and they despised him for it. So they leveled charges against him. But then, notice, they observed his countenance. What was Stephen's reaction after being caught by surprise and carried by an angry mob before the council? What did his face say about his heart? The Bible says, All that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. This takes, should take your mind back to Moses, whose face shone with the remnants of God's glory. Stephen didn't even have to open his mouth in his own defense. His very face reflected the presence of God. God was using Stephen to bear witness to this council of religious leaders and officials And God confirmed Stephen's message by illuminating his face. It's interesting, someone pointed out, as if in refutation of the charge of hostility to Moses, Stephen receives the same mark of divine favor which had been granted to Moses. This was another special miracle to confirm God's message before the Jews. Nevertheless, I find it fascinating And a bit convicting to see that where the men should have seen hatred or anger or frustration, they saw God's presence. They saw only grace in Stephen's face because his face reflected the condition of his heart. He was filled with the Spirit of God. How do you react to the world around you? What is your response when you face opposition or ridicule because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Think about Stephen. We'll discover as we continue on in this later on, he felt no ill will towards these men. He simply desired to be a witness for Jesus Christ. The church in Jerusalem grew mightily. 
They accomplished mighty things. And their success was tied to their faithful preaching and teaching of the word of God. Lasting and meaningful increase in success does not come through gimmicks. We must faithfully sow the seed of God's word and depend on God to give the increase. God's word should be increasing in your own life also. And through you, it should be increasing in the lives of others. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And when people faithfully and purposely share the gospel, people get saved. The Holy Spirit had a monopoly on Stephen. What about you? Do you fill your heart and your life with God's word? Do you have a consistent and constant prayer life? Do you draw as close to God as you possibly can? He will use you if you surrender yourself to him. You know, the enemy is going to oppose us. He's going to contrive clever ways to catch us and condemn us. How should we react in situations like that? We won't literally glow, of course, but people can tell a lot about the condition of our heart by the way we act and react. We should be reflecting Christ to those that we encounter, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. It should be apparent to them that Jesus resides within us. Are you a Christian that is fit for God's use? Stephen was just a man, but he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And those are things that you and I have available to us as Christians also. Can God use you in a mighty way the way he used Stephen. Let's bow our heads this morning. We want to give you an opportunity as the piano starts to play to just allow the Lord to examine your own heart. I trust that in answer to your prayers earlier, He has spoken specifically to you. We want to give you the opportunity to respond to Him. So take this time and do just that.